Is the men's choir tonight? Come on, next one. Next one, okay. Hey, men, thank you much, Corey and Janet. Just, uh, what, about three weeks or so, I think it is, uh, Corey and Janet will be married. And they've got a good start right here, serving the Lord. We thank them for that. Appreciate that song very, very much. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, please. Let's open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Please find John, chapter 20. And in our study today of John's Gospel, we come to a story that's really, I think, called the true climax of this Gospel account. Now, most of us would probably think about all the messages that I spoke about the cross, and we would think that the cross, that has to be the highlight of this book, and maybe that's the main point that John is trying to get across. Or if he's not talking mainly about the cross, then perhaps John is speaking about the resurrection. And of course, that's very important to our Christian faith, the resurrection of Christ. And if that's the most important thing that John is trying to stress, well, I certainly wouldn't argue too much with people who are of that opinion. But what I really think that John is trying to get across to us in this gospel is removal of all doubt of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now, in the end of our reading for today's message, John gives the purpose of this book, and I've spoken about it many times throughout our study of this gospel, and his purpose is, he states, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing in him, we would have life through his name. Well, if that is John's purpose, and that's the main thing that he wants to do, then the way for John to do that would to choose somebody who had great doubt, and then their mind was changed, and they realized who Jesus was, and they became, strong, became a strong believer in Christ. Well, John, in fact, does that in this story today, and this story ends with the highest expression of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we find in all of the gospel accounts. How many of you ever heard of Doubting Thomas? Have you ever used that term before? I think most of us know what that is. I ran across this cartoon, if you'd show that to us, Corey, um, as I was preparing this message. You may be in doubt about some things. Surely you are, but you don't have to be in doubt about who Jesus is. You don't have to remain in ignorance about him because the Bible tells us exactly who he is and what he came to do. Well, today we're going to read from John chapter 20 and verse number 19. We'll start there. If you'd stand with me, please. These first few verses that we'll read um, are the same verses that we read at the beginning of last week's message. And I preached about these particular verses, but of course the story does go on. Verse number 19. Then the same day at evening... Being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you." And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails." 
and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, in the original language, there's actually a double negative that's employed. And in the Greek language, that makes it even stronger. He said, I will not believe. Verse 26, And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. This time Thomas is there. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace unto you. So once again, Jesus appears. He appears in a room with locked doors. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Now, that's an evaluation of all of us here today. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these precious words that we read We ask you, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts today. Open our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we see you high and holy and lifted up. And may we even see the nail prints in your hands and your feet, that place in your side that was put there for our sins and for our justification. We trust you, Lord, to speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our reading today begins with the evening of the first Sunday morning, first Easter Sunday morning. And of course, we all know that on that first Easter that Jesus came out of the grave. And on that particular night, the night of the Easter Sunday night, the disciples had gathered together. They were all shut up in a room. They were very fearful because of the Jews. They were afraid that They might be captured or killed, even crucified as Jesus was crucified. And while they were meeting, no doubt they were talking about the events that had transpired. They were speaking about what their next move should be. While they were talking over these things, Jesus suddenly appeared in the room there with them. Jesus gathered with ten disciples. Now, Judas had already hung himself. He would have made the 11th disciple. But there was a 12th disciple that was missing, and that was Thomas. He would have made the 12th one. So Thomas is not there when Jesus makes this appearance on Easter Sunday evening. Now, I don't know if the service had already started uh, and, and Thomas came in late, or maybe he came in sometime even after that. And that's certainly uh, a lesson to us, to, especially to Lino and Jason, to get to church on time. But uh, Jesus did, did show up, and Thomas was not there with them. Thomas was late. Well, Thomas heard what the disciples said. They, they told him that they had seen the Lord. And then Thomas uttered some words that have haunted him. Perhaps they've haunted him somewhat unfairly. But Thomas said, I don't believe it. And he was emphatic about it. Thomas said, unless I can actually feel those nail prints. And he didn't say, unless I can see them. He said, unless I can feel those nail prints, unless I can touch them with my hands, and unless I can thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, one week later, the disciples were meeting again. This time, Thomas was there. 
Jesus appeared once more, and he greeted the disciples, and then he fastened his stare upon Thomas, because Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had said before. He heard every word that he spoke. And he looked directly at Thomas, and he said, Thomas, come here. Come and reach your hand out. Touch these nail prints that are in my hand. And he said, Thomas, come and thrust your hand into my side. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us if Thomas accepted that invitation. I don't think that he did. I don't think that he had to because when he saw Jesus, he knew exactly what he needed to do. And he knew exactly or knew that Jesus had heard exactly the words that he had spoken before. And so Thomas didn't need any other proof. He knew what he had demanded, but he didn't need any more when he saw Jesus. Well, in the message today, I want to talk to you about this passage and two things that Thomas did wrong and one thing that he did right. And I encourage you that these two things that Thomas did wrongly, you ought not to do these things. But the thing that he did right, I want that to be encouraged, encouragement to you to do exactly what Thomas did. So let's talk about first two things that Thomas did wrong and that you shouldn't do. And the first one is, Thomas missed church on Sunday night, so don't miss your opportunity to gather. Don't miss your opportunity to gather with other believers. Now, the title of the message is, Don't Miss Church on Sunday Night, because every time that you miss church and you're not there to gather with God's people, then you miss growth and development that's needed for every single believer. So Thomas missed church on this first Sunday night, and there are some things particularly that he missed by not being there. Now, there are three important things that I'd like to talk to you about first today that Thomas missed by not being in church. But before we get to that, let me just say this. I think it's a shame that so many churches today have abandoned their Sunday night services. I've talked to people and they've said, you know, we've looked long and hard for a church that has a service on Sunday night and we can't find one. And as far as I know, we are the only church in Roner Park that has a Sunday evening service. Well, I grew up with Sunday night church. I went to church every Sunday night the whole time when I was growing up. And so I am committed that we will meet together on Sunday night and we will teach and preach God's word. But regardless of whether we're talking about Sunday night or Sunday morning, you have an opportunity to hear God's word being preached and you ought not to miss that. Don't miss the opportunity to meet together with God's people. Now let me show you three things that Thomas missed because he wasn't there on that first Easter Sunday night. First, Thomas missed the presence of Jesus. Now, he just simply missed out on seeing Jesus and that opportunity that he had to fellowship with him. Now, I tend to think that all of these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, they must have been extremely important. And to not be there when Jesus appeared, Thomas missed out on this wonderful opportunity to be there in the presence of Jesus just before he ascended to go to his heavenly Father. And do you know that when we meet together to worship Jesus right here, that the Bible teaches us that Jesus is present with us in a very special way. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, For where two or three, two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. And of course, the key to that passage is Jesus saying, Gathered together in my name. Those are the important words. Now, we, of course, know that God is everywhere. 
You can't go anywhere where God's not there. He's omnipresent, everywhere present at the same time. And so we might think, well, why is it so important to go to church for the presence of Jesus? Because God's present everywhere. Why do we need to do that? Well, the key to the passage again, what Jesus said, is gathered in my name. Now, you may decide to do something else on Sunday rather than to gather with God's people. You may decide to go out and be on the boat on Sunday or go to the races on Sunday or go to a football game. And I'd like for you to explain to me how that you are gathered together in the name of Jesus when you do that. Now, you might be gathered in the name of Evan Rood when you're out on the boat or in the name of Bobby Labonte when you go to NASCAR or in the name of Peyton Manning when you go to a football game, but you haven't gathered in the name of Jesus. And so when you miss church, you actually miss out on the presence of Jesus being with his people in a very special way. So Thomas missed that. He wasn't in church on Sunday night, and so he missed the presence of Jesus. But then we also notice this, that Thomas missed the peace of Jesus. Last week we talked about that, the peace of Jesus. There were two things. We spoke about peace with God, and we related that to our salvation. And we spoke of the peace of God. And the peace of God is our security. That's our comfort. That's our, our freedom from anxiety because of all the things that are going on around us. We can have peace of God. Well, after Jesus appeared on that first Easter Sunday night, those disciples who saw him had a new lease on life. They were there in fear. They were in despondency. They were afraid of what might happen to them. They'd gathered there and locked themselves away. But when Jesus came and he spoke to them, he brought them peace. He spoke peace to them. And then all of those fears were set aside. But Thomas wasn't there. Thomas, for that whole next week, he had no peace He didn't see Jesus. So he's still wondering about those events of the crucifixion. He's still wondering about what will happen next because he wasn't there. Well, have you ever experienced this? You miss church on Sunday and the next week turns out to be a bad week. Things just don't seem to go right because you didn't make it to church. And you know what the world has tried to condition us to believe? They've tried to get us to understand or to think like this, that Sunday is part of the weekend. Sunday's a part of my weekend. We all go to work. We work all day, uh, all week long. We get tired, and we're just looking for the weekend. We get to Wednesday, and we call that hump day, and we're glad to just get over the hump. The week's almost gone. We get to Friday, and we say, thank God it's Friday. I mean, it's the weekend. I'm free now. I feel so much better. I've gotten to the weekend. And the world's trying to condition us to believe that Sunday is a part of that weekend. You know, I heard about a fellow right here in Roner Park. He got up on Sunday morning and he said, I don't want to go to church. I just don't want to go. And his wife said to him, well, you've got to go to church. You can't miss church. Get up, get ready and go to church. He said, give me one good reason why I have to go to church. She said, well, first of all, you are the pastor. (laughs) We, We just look at it as the weekend. Well, folks, Sunday is not the weekend. Sunday's the first day of the week. Did you know that? Have you ever looked at your calendar? Sunday is the first day of the week. Now, I've noticed even that Microsoft thinks that Sunday is the weekend. I've got an option in Outlook. In Outlook, you use that, and it's got an option to start your week on Monday and to end it on Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week, and what you need to do as God's child, you need to get your week started off right. 
And the way to get started off right is to be in God's house, meeting with God's people, fellowshipping around the Word of God, listening to it being preached, and have that sweet fellowship of the special presence of Jesus with us. So, he wasn't there. Thomas missed that because he wasn't in church on Sunday night. But that's not all that he missed. And perhaps this is the most important thing that he missed. He missed the the presence of Jesus, and he missed the peace of Jesus, but he also missed the precepts of Jesus. And I mean, he missed Jesus preaching and his teaching. Now, do you realize what he missed here? Thomas was not there when Jesus gave the disciples the commission to the church. He wasn't there when Jesus spoke the most important thing that the church is to do. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. But Thomas wasn't there to hear that. Thomas was not there to hear Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit. He said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. But Thomas wasn't there to hear it because he missed church on Sunday night. And then what about that verse number 23, when Jesus talked about that whole thing about remission of sins? You know, a lot of people have very much difficulty trying to interpret uh, John 20, verse number 23. They don't know what that's talking about. Well, do you know Thomas had the opportunity to question Jesus personally about that? But he couldn't, because he missed church on Sunday night. So he didn't hear the explanation. So Thomas missed out on some great teachings... And if you need another reason why you ought not to miss that opportunity to meet with God's people, you ought not to miss because you miss hearing the Word of God taught and preached. I know all of you are aware of the statement the Apostle Paul and others have made. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, maybe some of you just don't have enough faith. And maybe the reason is you've missed too many opportunities to hear God's Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Now, all of you know, I can't pass this part of the message without going to that old familiar passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 25, where the writer says, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more, as you see the day approaching." Now, folks, that is a preacher's text right there. Don't miss church. That's what Paul's saying. But do you know what he's talking about here when he says the day is approaching? What day is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. And as a Christian, your commitment to the Lord must and needs to be growing stronger every single day. You need to live your life in the hope that Jesus is coming back and I am committed to him. Now, the writer here says that we come together, we meet as God's people for the purpose of exhorting one another and encouraging one another as we see the day of Jesus Christ approaching. Jesus is coming back. And I'll tell you, folks, I would like no better than for Jesus to come back today while I'm right here in church preaching his word. That'd be a wonderful thing. And I sure would hate to be a Christian if Jesus did come back on a Sunday and I wasn't at church. I'd hate for him to come back on a Sunday night and I wasn't there. Don't miss church on Sunday night. You know, there's an old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, when we talk about going to church and thinking about our fellowship with Christ, absence makes the heart grow colder. Because the longer that you stay away from God's house the colder that you will become towards the things of God. 
It's sort of like this. You know, it's like fire burning in a fireplace. When a fire is burning in the fireplace, all the coals are in there, all the embers together, they're all glowing together, and the fire is burning. But take one of those embers out, take one coal out of the fireplace and lay it on the hearth, and you know what happens? Not very long before it gets cold, is it? You leave it there, and it's going to get cold. So you take it out of the fireplace and out of the fire and out of that uh, communion with those other embers that are in the fire, it starts to grow cold. And the same thing happens with church. When you miss church, you start growing a little bit colder. And when you miss again, you get even colder. Finally, you find yourself drifting away. It becomes easier and easier for you to miss church. And then you come to the place where you don't care if you even go to church at all. When you separate yourself from God's people, it won't be long until the heart grows cold. The fire goes out. Fire's no longer there. You don't have the fellowship with other Christians. And so you become so influenced by the cold world that's out there that your heart itself becomes cold. But the longer that you're in the fire, the more that you meet and you gather with God's people and you attend church as you should the more on fire for God that you'll be. So don't miss your opportunity to gather with other believers. And that's the first mistake that Thomas made. I'm almost glad that he made that mistake so I could preach about it today. Like I said, it's a preacher's text. Come to church. Don't miss church. Thomas missed out on a lot because he wasn't at church on Sunday night. Well, there's a second thing that Thomas did wrong, and you ought not to do this. Don't mistake doubt for faith. Thomas was one of the original 12 disciples. Sometimes I even think that he gets a bad rap here because somehow we think that faith is really an easy thing. I mean, faith, I mean, anybody can have faith. Anytime that you decide, you can have faith. You know, faith is not really so easy, is it? Because you think about all these people out in the world and you think about the demonstration of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There are actually few people in the world that do have faith. There is no faith. And the only way that a person can have faith is when God leads him to it. And this is exactly what the story is about. Thomas did not see what the other disciples saw. Now, of course, they were fearful. They had also missed teachings, Jesus' teachings previously to this. But he appeared to them, and his appearance brought them into greater faith, and they understood what it was all about. Now, we ought not to disparage Thomas. We need to be careful how we do that and how we call him doubting Thomas because all of the disciples actually doubted until Jesus came and led them into faith. Now, here's the thing. God is the one who erases all doubt. And in that respect, Thomas was no different from any of the other disciples. You know the first place that we see Thomas in in, in John? It's in John chapter 11. It was when Jesus had decided to go back to Judea. All of the disciples were speaking with him. They said, we don't think it's a very good idea. You ought not to go back to Judea because the last time that you were there, they tried to stone you. So don't go back there. That's not a very good idea. But Jesus was determined to go. Of course, Jesus knew why he was going. He was going there because it was time for him to die. He was setting the whole thing up. He was in control. So he wanted to go back to Judea, back to Jerusalem. But the disciples said, it's not a very good idea. But you know who said, let's go with him? Do you know who said, if we're going to die, or if he's going to die, we will also die with him? Do you know who said that? That was Thomas. 
Thomas was the one who suggested, let's go with him. Because if he's going to die, we'll die with him. Now you see, the point here is that Thomas was really no more of a doubter than any of the other disciples. It was not until Jesus led them to faith that they fully understood and they believed. Well, what's the lesson that we learn from this? Now that, now that we have been given the whole record of God's Word today, and John has written all this down for our belief, what's our lesson in this? Well, first I think it is, doubt says, when I see it, I will believe it. Doubt says, when I see it, I will believe it. Doubt says, when I have the proof, when my senses can enter into this, when I can see it, when I can touch it, when I can hear it, when I can taste it, when I can smell it, that's when I'll believe. But on the other hand, faith says, when I believe it, I will see it. Now, you won't see it with your physical eyes or literally with your eyes, but you'll know that it's true because you believe it. By faith, you believe that it's true. Let me take you back for just a moment to your seventh grade science class. Maybe some of you remember this. You remember one of the first things that you learned in seventh grade science? Your teacher told you that science depends upon empirical evidence. The basis for science is empiricism. And what empiricism means, it means things that are observable, things that I can experience and things that I can see in a test tube. Anybody remember that? Some of you are not smarter than a seventh grader then, are you? But do you remember that? Empiricism. Well, science says then if I can observe it, if I can see it under controlled conditions, if I can describe it rationally and logically, it must be true, and so I can believe it. But if I can't see it in a test tube, then I won't believe it. And so the scientist says to Christians, how can you Christians believe these things? I mean, how can you believe that stuff? You can't actually see it. You can't actually touch it. Why do you believe things that your senses don't enter into? Well, that's the same thing that Thomas thought. He said, I have to see it. I have to seal those nail prints. I have to touch them with my hands. And if I don't put my hand into his side, then I won't believe it. I've got to have the empirical proof. Let me stop right there for just a moment. Did you know that in the Bible, in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Christ, that nowhere does it say that there were nails driven into Jesus' hands? Did you know that? Thomas is the one who told us about nails. This is where you find it out right here. They put nails into his hands. And Thomas said, unless I see where those nails went in, and unless I can put my hand into his side, I won't believe. Now, I don't want to get too philosophical on you today, But do you realize that the scientist has to have blind faith in something? He actually does. He puts blind faith into the scientific method. How does he even know that the scientific method is true? Well, here's the whole problem with this. If you go through life believing only what your five senses tell you, if you believe in only what you can see, what you can touch, what you can hear, what you can taste, what you can smell, then, friend, you'll never know God. God is beyond our natural senses. Faith is not an irrational thing. Don't anybody tell you that. Faith is irrational. Faith is not irrational. Faith is supernatural. Faith supersedes the natural. So Thomas made this mistake. He depended on the senses. Now I want you to notice something in verse number 24. It says, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus. Didymus means twin. Thomas was a twin. 
he had a twin. Now, we don't know who that twin was, but he had a twin. And I would suggest to you today that Thomas has many twins in the world because there are a whole lot of people who do not want to believe unless they can actually see something. Have you ever noticed today that people are looking for miracles? We hear about miracles all the time. People are chasing after that. They've got to see somebody healed. And we have all these faith healers on television. They've got to hear somebody speak in tongues. And there are people that claim that they can do that. And they think, well, that will help build my faith. If I can just see these different things, I'll have greater faith. Some of you might even remember this lady in East Tennessee a few years ago. One night she went into her kitchen and she flipped on the light switch. And she noticed that there was, a, there was a, a shadow on the trailer next door in the trailer park where she lived, and she thought it looked like Jesus. So she told people about that, and word started to get out, and people from all over started coming to her house to come in and stand at her kitchen sink and to see that shadow on the wall that they thought looked like Jesus. It got so popular, she even started charging $2.00. $2 a head for people to come in, stand at my kitchen sink, and see Jesus over there. Well, there was one fellow who came in, paid his $2, and after it was over, he said, you know, I think I want my money back. I think it looked like Willie Nelson. <laughs> and maybe you remember, it hasn't been too long ago, that person that had the grilled cheese sandwich that, that they thought had an image there of the Virgin Mary on it? Somebody just burned their toast just right. Well, that's not real faith. The Bible tells us what faith is. Hebrews says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And you need to be aware of this, that this is the kind of faith that the Bible requires, and it's the only kind that will ever ever enable you to see and to please God. In the sixth chapter or sixth verse of that same chapter, rather, the writer said, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's the kind of faith that God requires. Well, I said there are two things that Thomas did wrong. One thing that he did right. He was wrong because he didn't gather with the disciples on Sunday night. He was wrong because he had doubt instead of faith. But this next thing that he did, he did right. And you need to do the same. Here's what you need to do that's right. Do make a strong confession. Thomas made a strong confession. It's hard for us to imagine that Thomas didn't right then get down on his knees as he made this strong confession. Now what Thomas did, he made a demand of God that he had no right to ask. He said, unless I see it, I will not believe it. Thomas didn't have the right to demand that. Neither does anyone here have a right to demand from God that I must see something before I will believe it. But don't you know that it's just like Jesus not to do this? He didn't say to Thomas, he didn't speak harshly to him and say, Thomas, you ingrate, you ungrateful person. Do you realize what I've been through? Do you know what I had to go through for you? Thomas, get down on your knees right now and you repent of everything that you said. I don't think Jesus did that. I think Jesus spoke to him very compassionately. And he offered Thomas the very thing that he demanded. 
he offered him the very proof that he wanted. He said, Thomas, you can come. You can touch me. You can put your finger in the nail prints. You can put your hand in my side. Thomas, you can do that if you want. Come and touch me. But again, I don't think Thomas had to do that. Thomas didn't have to touch him because right then he recognized who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus had done. An empirical test was no longer necessary for Thomas. He had a new vision of the cross at this point. He saw the hands, he saw the feet, he saw the side, and he believed. And he said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. I want to ask you three questions today about your confession. You do need to make a good confession. I want to ask you first, have you confessed Jesus as Lord? You're the only one who can answer that question. You know, I've had people come to me and say, well, here is a sin that somebody committed. Here's what they did. Do you think that that person is saved? Well, I can give an opinion based upon empirical evidence. But I really don't have any idea. The only person that knows that Jesus has become the Lord of their life is that person. But is it important for us to confess Jesus? According to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it's very important. The Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth... Confession is made unto salvation. Remember a couple of three weeks ago, we talked about secret believers. One thing we learned about secret believers is that secret believers don't stay secret believers. Because if they did, we would never know that they were believers because they kept it a secret. So evidently, secret believers don't stay secret believers. Because if you've got this in your heart and you really do believe it, it's going to come out. You will confess it. You will say that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, you can't sit there today and be thinking in your mind, yes, Jesus is my Lord. I do trust him. But I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm not going to tell anybody. According to the Bible, that's an impossible thing to do. You have to confess it with your mouth if Jesus is really Lord of your life because that's what will happen. Second question I want to ask you, have you confessed Jesus personally? Is he your personal Lord and Savior? Now, the most important word in Thomas' confession is that two-little-letter possessive adjective. He said, my Lord and my God. Jesus is my Lord? That's a whole lot different than saying Jesus is the Lord. You know, I can stand up here today and I can proclaim to you, Jesus is Lord of the universe. Jesus is Lord of people here today. Jesus is Lord of the church. But it's different when I say Jesus is my Lord. When I say Jesus is my Lord, I'm saying he's my boss. Jesus is the one that I follow. He's the one who's controlling my life. It's a whole lot different. And this is what Thomas said. He said, Jesus is my boss, and he said, my Lord and my God. You know when he said, my God, that's a very important statement because Thomas was saying right there that Jesus is God. Jesus is the object of my worship. And you ought not to miss this truth here because there are religions in the world. There are those that are claimed that they're Christian, 
but they don't believe that Jesus is Jehovah God. You need to understand, before you can be accepted by him, you must believe exactly as Colossians says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. To be saved, you have to accept Jesus on his terms and his conditions. And you can't make him anything less than what he says that he is. When he says that he's God, you must believe that he's very God. And that's what differentiates him from all the other religions of the world. But there's a final question I want to ask you. Have you confessed him publicly? Have you confessed Jesus publicly? Now, the primary biblical way to confess Jesus publicly is in the ordinance of baptism. From the very beginning of the church, baptism was the public declaration of belief. Baptism was never a private affair. People gathered to see baptisms, and and a person got baptized. That's what he was saying. I want everybody to know that I'm a Christian. Now, you may be here today, and you say, well, you know, I don't know about baptism. Jesus is my Lord, but I'm a little bit embarrassed to get baptized. I'm not too sure about that. Well, the question I have for you then is, are you ashamed of Jesus? I mean, that, that would be a question, isn't it? And go back to the first question. How can you call him Lord of your life and not do what he says to do? And Jesus said that very thing in Luke six forty six. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And what was it that Jesus said? He said, go ye into all the world and teach all nations. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now here's what the Bible teaches happens when you're baptized. When you're baptized into In in this church, you become a member of this church. Membership in the church is predicated upon baptism. And if you haven't been baptized in this church or in a church of like faith and order, then, friend, you haven't confessed Jesus properly, publicly. You haven't done it the right way. So what should you do? Make a strong confession. Confess him as your Lord, confess him personally, and confess him publicly. Public confession of Jesus is not coming up the aisle and kneeling at these steps and say, Hey, everybody, I'm saved. You'll never find that anywhere in the Scriptures. It never happened anywhere in the Scriptures. Then anybody came up a church aisle, and that was called public confession. That's not it. There, that's public confession going into the waters of baptism and saying, I've been baptized with Christ. I've died to my old way of life, and I rise to walk in the new life in Jesus Christ. That is a public display, and that's what God demands. Now, let me tell you what will happen when you decide that he is your Lord, and when you are faithful to him and you go through those waters of baptism, what happens? It always happens this way. You will confess him by your testimony. Born-again believers always do this. They live a life of faith. Born-again believers live a life of testimony. That testimony is there at work. It's at school. It's at the mall. It's on vacation. It's in recreation. You will testify to God through your life. Now, Jesus said to Thomas, Now, it's good, Thomas. You've seen me, and now you have believed. But, Thomas, it is so much better if you believe without seeing Blessed are they that have seen, not seen, and yet have believed. Now, let me talk to you just a minute as we close here about true faith in Jesus Christ. What does that really mean? Well, it doesn't mean 
believing facts about Jesus. You can know all the facts that there are about what Jesus came to do. You can read the Bible through a hundred times if you want to and learn, memorize all the facts that you want to. But that's not what it means to be saved. Being saved is when you realize personally that Jesus has done this for you. That Jesus died on the cross for me. And he took my sins personally and he went to the cross and he died there and he's taken my sins away through my belief in him. Now, here's the thing. There are lots of people who believe that Jesus can save. Oh, they're thoroughly convinced of that. Jesus can save. They may even know some saved people. So there's no problem with that. They do believe Jesus can save. A couple, three weeks ago, no, it's about a month ago, I guess, about now, Brother Dalton and his wife, Patsy, took us to the airport so we could catch the plane to go to Kentucky. Well, I learned as we were going to the airport that Patsy does not like to fly. But she does believe in Jesus because she says, Lo, I am with you always. That's what she believes about it. Well, people believe that planes can fly, don't they? But it's not until they get aboard the airplane and they sit in that seat and they buckle themselves in that that really becomes personal. See, you can believe Jesus can save, but not until you trust him personally and you have all your confidence in him that he'll take all your sins away. It's not until you do that that you can be saved. Well, we come down to the conclusion of the chapter now. Verses 30 and 31, John says, And many other signs... Truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. We have just one chapter to go in our study now, but this is the climax. John does not want us to go away with doubt. And he doesn't say, when in doubt, act stupid. There's no reason to do that because John has recorded all of these things that we might believe and that believing in him, we might have life through his name. So the question is, do you believe? Have you trusted Jesus as your personal Savior and have you confessed him publicly? And if you haven't, that's what you need to do. And also don't forget, don't miss church on Sunday night. That's important. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you for the great truths from your word. I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today. Would you speak to folks here about their salvation, coming to know you personally as Lord and Savior. And may there be someone today who would say, my Lord and my God, I trust you, Lord. I put my faith in you. I believe you did it all for me. Would you work in someone's heart today? And maybe there's a Christian here who's saying today, well, I need to confess this publicly. I really do need to make this known. So I want to come and I want to be baptized. I want to declare my faith publicly through my baptism. And and Lord, I want to become a part of the Lord's church. I want to do that today. I just ask you, Lord, speak to someone today. Work in their hearts. Draw us to you. And we'll give you all the praise and glory for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.